catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information that we really need to understand so we can better discern the times we live in. Um, it was a dark and ugly weekend overseas. We're going to start right there with the stuff going on in Israel. We need to stop before we start covering this. And events are moving rapidly. We're not going to try to do a play-by-play of everything that's going on or has happened over the last few days. I was on the road over the weekend. I also had to take a couple days off last week for some family matters. But this current situation in Israel, you need to understand when it's being presented to you on news media and especially on social media, there's a couple things you need to understand and that we can tell whether we're getting good information or not before we get into all the particulars on this. Let's start with a basic principle. Slaughtering civilians is always bad. If you cannot put on your social media, if you cannot say out loud, if you cannot put in your conversation, slaughtering innocent civilians is always bad. You've already lost the plot on all this stuff. I will listen to the oppression of the Palestinians. I will listen to how Israel has been, uh, of course, we all know about the history of the Jewish people and the Holocaust and all the horrible things that have happened there. We know about the decades and decades of violence in the Middle East. If you, as a human being, and I don't care where you are on the planet, I don't care about your cultural background, I don't care about your religious beliefs, if you cannot say the simple statement, slaughtering civilians is always wrong, you're part of the problem. You've got something broken in your soul. It's never justified to murder civilians. And if civilians on your side got murdered, that doesn't justify you murdering civilians on the other side. Let's start right there. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Hamas is not the Palestinians at whole, but we're going to get into that in just a second. That's a complicated thing. Hamas did not attack military targets, although they did attack some police stations and a base and the uh, border security apparatuses. What Hamas did here, they attacked a music festival. They murdered, raped, and pillaged, and videoed it all because they're very, very proud of it. They took hostages. They went through neighborhoods, door-to-door in houses, murdering. They murdered old people at bus stations. There's other videos of more atrocities. Not all of them have been confirmed, so we'll just lay off that. But there's no doubt here now, as we record this, the death toll in Israel is over 700 people now, thousands wounded. There's probably hundreds or more that are dying in Gaza right now as part of the retaliatory strikes. This is going to be bloody and ugly and long. But Hamas is a terrorist organization. They raped and killed and paraded and did all those horrible things that you've seen on your social media feeds by now. Hamas is a terrorist organization. There is no excuse for slaughtering innocent civilians. Period. End of statement. If you are justifying that, there's something wrong with you. And you have an agenda that is now anti-human beings, regardless of what you say you're for. But there's some nomenclature in the way this is covered that we need to talk about real quick. Let's start with what we just talked about, Palestinians. Any news outlet, talking head, anybody that's doing what I'm doing, podcasting, news media, a news report, whatever. Anyone framing this as Israel versus the Palestinians, you can just go ahead and stop. As soon as they say that, ignore everything else they're saying because they're already off the plot. Hamas, the terrorist organization has taken over Gaza, okay? 
there's people that'll use terms like decolonialization. Well, decolonialization is throwing off a foreign power. That's not what's happened in Gaza with Hamas. Now, the Fatah movement that Hamas beat out in a rather bloody little civil war and took over Gaza from, you could argue that with them because they were about Palestinian statehood, ostensibly, even though they had some terrorist tendencies as well. Hamas doesn't have any nationalistic intentions. They are solely for the purpose of eradicating Jews and the state of Israel and murdering them and killing them. When they chant from the river to the sea, they mean to kill every Jew between the river and the sea and take it all back. So all that nomenclature of Palestinian statehood, all that nomenclature of decolonialization, which is a nice academic term for this stuff, that doesn't apply to Hamas in any way, shape or form, because, again, Hamas is a terrorist organization. All they want to do is kill and rape and murder and pillage. Now, Hamas is a complicated thing as well because they are not just a run-of-the-mill people running around doing terrorist things. They have a huge network. They won an election against Fatah in Gaza, so they actually have the civil authority apparatus of Gaza. So they're not just the terrorist wing. They have a civil administration wing. They have charity wings. They have fundraising wings. Something you have to understand about Hamas, and this has already come out because, you know, we don't know specifically this attack, but we've got good reporting and intelligence on this stuff now. Obviously, someone like Iran was involved to help them do this because Hamas is telling us they were involved and helped them do this. You want to believe other people, knock yourself out. But Iran has always backed them for a long time. In fact, they answer, Hamas answers directly to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard apparatus. Places like Qatar, where all the money for Hamas goes through, and a lot of the higher-ups in the Hamas organization actually live in Qatar in luxury. They're not living in Gaza. They don't suffer with the Palestinian people. They live in Qatar. They live in Qatar in big, luxurious means, completely separated from all the bloodshed and all the havoc and all the chaos. All that poverty you hear about in Gaza, that's all true. The immense poverty, the terrible human conditions in Gaza, that's true, but remember... Hamas is in charge of Gaza. Israel pulled out. And Hamas decided, instead of putting together something vaguely resembling a functioning state, to turn it into a terrorist haven and a base of operations against Israel. That's that's how they get their funding. That's how they get all their fundraising. That's how the people at the top of their money scheme stay very rich, by pitching violence to people who want to fund such things. Meanwhile, Palestinian people in Gaza are the human shield for Hamas. They can hide behind them. Every time they provoke Israel into an attack, they hide behind the civilians. The civilian casualties go up. They blame Israel. Nice self-sufficient cycle of violence. It's horrible. Now, there's things Israel does that needs to be held accountable. Benjamin Netanyahu has a lot to answer for because he has sown so much chaos inside of Israel over the last year and a half as he desperately tries to hold on to power both against corruption charges and also because he's been trying to change the judiciary and other systems inside of Israel. There's reporting now that he may or may not have had some notice on this that he ignored. We'll see how that plays out. We do know that he was using military assets to shore up uh, parts of his voting blocks, which may have left parts of southern Israel underdefended. We will see how those reports play out. But now Benjamin Netanyahu is saying we're going to launch a land invasion into Gaza. There's a looming issue here. People don't want to hear this because here's how people do on social media. They go, well, just turn Gaza into glass. No, there's 2 million people in Gaza. You're not going to do that. We'll just kill them all like Gaza. No, that's wrong, too. Where do we start with this? Slaughtering innocent civilians is always wrong. Now, Israel is a sovereign government. They are accountable in some ways. We can withdraw funding from them. We can put international pressure on them. They can be held accountable. They have people from the IDF that have gone to jail for how they've treated Palestinians. They've also done some things in some of the conflicts that other people probably should have went to jail for as well. But that doesn't excuse Hamas, the terrorist organization, from going into a music festival and slaughtering and raping and murdering. It does not excuse Hamas from going door-to-door and murdering people. It does not excuse Hamas from gunning down people at a bus station. There's a lot of layers to the Palestinian-Israel conflict. A lot of it is provoked by people who want there to be endless bloodshed forever. 
And caught in the middle of it is a whole bunch of innocent civilians that are going to get slaughtered. And more of them are going to get slaughtered over the coming days because that's what people like Hamas need to feed their stuff. I'm also concerned because Benjamin Netanyahu, knowing that he's going to get some blame for this thing, is going to overreact without too much of a plan. So there's people yelling about just go in there. Okay, you put 100,000 troops into Gaza. 100,000 troops cannot keep 2 million people underfoot. That ain't going to work. You better have a plan, an exit plan. Have we not learned anything in the last 20, 30 years of modern warfare? You're not going to be able to hold it without extensive civilian problems and extensive civilian casualties and, frankly, resources that Israel ain't going to be able to pursue to put out. So Netanyahu needs to have more of a plan here than just we're going to go in and kill everybody that's associated with Hamas. That's fine, but are you going to reoccupy Gaza? Are we going to go back to how that worked? We know how that ends. It's a mess. A lot of layers to these things. Israel absolutely has a right to defend itself. The terrorists of Hamas are some of the worst in the world, and we have it on video now because they were proud to show the world how they raped women and abused women and broke their bodies and paraded them through the streets, how they committed all sorts of atrocities against innocent civilians, because that's what they do. They're genocidal. They just want to kill everybody. There's no nationalism to them. There's nothing about the Palestinian people to them. They're just rapists, murderers, and thugs, and they should be dealt with as such. But here's the problem with the coverage, and we all have to be very careful with this. You can't fully put them and the Palestinians in the same camp because then you're going to wind up with a whole bunch more dead civilians. Remember where we started with this? Slaughtering innocent civilians is always wrong. If you start killing Palestinians just because of Hamas, you're going to have a problem. Now, Palestinians have some answering to do here, too, because they tolerate Hamas. They don't seem to mind Hamas being in charge of them. Hamas won an election to get that power, although that may have been a little dodgy looking, but we can talk about that some other time. Mostly for the American and international audience, be very mindful that a lot of people have a lot of agendas covering this issue. And as these very dark days, and this is going to be long and bloody and ugly, there's a lot more involved here than just Israel versus Palestine. That's a sideshow to the bigger picture of what's going on here. This has to do with long-running things of terrorism, of anti-Semitism, of anti-Arab mindsets, of people who want to spend a lot of money, a lot of capital, and a lot of other people's lives to try to see their end goals met politically, regionally, religiously, and otherwise. There's no version of this with a quick, clean answer, and anybody issuing one should be roundly ignored. So when you hear terms like Palestinian, Hamas, decolonialism, Israeli occupation, Israeli war crimes, Hamas is just freedom fighters. Those terms all mean things. And you need to discern those terms and understand why the person saying it is saying it the way they are. If you're watching coverage on Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera has some very good journalists. It's also the state-run media of Qatar. And Qatar's got their money in their hands all over Hamas and Palestine and all sorts of things. Just take it with a grain of salt. Doesn't mean they're not good journalists. They do have good journalists there. But they also have an agenda at a corporate level. So does our media. The American media response over the weekend was atrocious. I was watching German outlets and some overseas outlets so you could actually get things like terrorists in the headline, which our media seemed to have a problem with. Hamas fighters. No, they're not fighters. They're terrorists. These terms mean things. Discernment is the most important thing with something like this, which is now going to be an all-out shooting war and a bloody one and a long one probably at that. We're going to have to talk about our ally Israel and our support of them. We're going to have to talk about the Palestinian issue and how this changes it. And remember, the West Bank is a totally different deal than Gaza, somewhat by design. There's quotes by Netanyahu about this. You can go find how they wanted to split Gaza and the West Bank separately because they're governed differently, and Gaza is now controlled directly by Hamas. Now you also got to watch the northern border of Israel. We already know Syria has been a mess. Lebanon is completely unstable. And what's Hezbollah going to do now? You start putting 100,000 troops in the south of Israel, somebody might feel froggy and jump into the north of Israel. These are dark times. But let's start with some basic principles and keep our nomenclature clean and understand what we're seeing on the news and media, not just react to everything. Slaughtering innocent civilians is always wrong. Hamas is always a terrorist organization. They don't care about the Palestinian people whatsoever. They don't. The Palestinian people are a human shield to them. 
for them to hide behind when they need to, and for them to provoke Israel into attacking them, trying to get to Hamas so that they can further escalate their own violence against Israel. Israel needs to be held accountable for their actions at all, even when they have righteous anger to respond to, which they do. They better have a plan and not just start pouring troops into Gaza with no exit plan and no strategy because we know how that's going to end because we've seen it before. And people like Netanyahu, who have power struggles, who are probably going to try to overcompensate for their own failures, both intelligence-wise and leadership-wise leading up to this, they have some responsibility here too that we got to pay attention to. And anybody who says you can't keep all those layers separate and pay attention to all of them at once, be wary. They've got some kind of an agenda or they don't know what they're talking about. It's a complicated issue, even though we have moral clarity that Hamas is a terrorist organization and the Israeli people have a right to defend themselves. That's moral clarity. The complicated issues, though, is not just reacting and thinking that this is all going to go away with just a little bit more violence. It's not. It's going to perpetuate. And we need to be clear-eyed about what we're about to see in the days to come. Go ahead and pray for peace. I know I do. But war, especially in places like the Middle East, is the norm, not the exception. Too many folks kidded themselves about that. And here we are again. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Quick note, one thing with this Israel conflict is how stupid our U.S. Congress is right now. Matt Gates is, of course, proud of himself for deposing Kevin McCarthy, and I think McCarthy's a duplicitous hack. We knew when he won the speakership with the one-vote uh, vacate-to-chair motion contingency plan in place that he was going to get deposed at some point. Now it's happened. So this isn't a defense of Kevin McCarthy specifically. It's a defense of the institution this is why you can't just do the burn it down stuff. Because now, over the weekend, they were trying to figure out how they're going to have briefings for Congress on what's going on overseas because we don't have a Speaker of the House. They can't conduct business. They can't even do one of their stupid, pointless resolutions of support or anything right now because we don't have a Speaker of the House. This is why you never give in to the burn it down people. People like Matt Gates, and there's others like him. There's people on the left like this, too. But the Republicans have a real problem with this right now. Just burn it all down. No, you can't burn it all down. The burn it all down people like Gates are not wanting it to all get burned down to rebuild it and make it better. They may say that, but that's not what they really want to do. Matt Gates has no ability to ever become the Speaker of the House. He has no ability. He thinks in his head he's probably going to be president or a senator or a governor or whatever. And he may be. There may be enough lunatics in Florida to actually vote for this crazy person. But what he's really doing. And he's uh, symbolic of a lot of these burn it down people. They don't want to burn it down to make it better. They want to burn it down so that they can bring everybody else down to their level because they'll never achieve the level that the institutions and those other people have ever risen to. You understand the difference in that? It's all about them. That was all about Matt Gates. That was all about him getting his moment. That was all about him getting to stab his Caesar in the forum. And letting McCarthy look at him and go, hey, too brute. And he goes, oh, yeah, because it was a personal grudge. And he loved, just watch those media gaggles on the steps. Matt Gates has never been more media followed, never been more popular in media. He's never gotten more attention. He was just ego stroking himself all over your screens and social media. He was loving it. He loves him some him. It's all about Matt Gates. Well... That works for a little while, but the problem is now his whole conference thinks he's a pariah. A lot of them want to actually vote him either out of the conference, if not out of Congress altogether. This is the high watermark, Matt, Matt Gates, And things like in Israel just showed you how foolish this was because now we can't even have a functioning Congress, even as dysfunctional as it was previous. You got your moment. You got to stab your Caesar. Problem is there, broody Matt Gates, your Philip High is coming, and that don't end well for you. Should go read up on how that works out. Yeah, you got to stab the boss in the forum. You're never going to get to be Caesar yourself. The burn it down folks 
the hardcore MAGA everything for Trump folks. The people like Matt Gates, who there's little room in his heart for anybody but Matt Gates to quote Red October and Tupolev. Matt Gates is burning it down to try to get everybody down to his level. Irrelevant, not well liked, very little future prospects, has nothing but the mendacity of the moment to ever look forward to. We should have a Speaker of the House of some form so we can actually function now. It's going to probably be a week or two until we get one of those, if at all. Thanks a lot, Matt Gates. You made us all look foolish. And you probably did a lot of harm to yourself in the process. Congratulations. Proud moment for you and your family, you third-generation Nippo baby politician you. You've used your immense privilege to show the world what a shallow fool you really are. More Hurt Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, let's go down to Argentina, a country we covered a couple of weeks ago in the big picture. We're going to get a little more granular, get some detail of what is going on down there. New face to the program. Happy to have him. Young Voices contributor, also a contributor with things like Forbes Argentina. He is the project manager of Fundacion Levitad. I don't think I said that right, but you can correct me when you get there. Uh, Marcos Falcone, great to have you on the program, sir. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, Andrew, thank you for the invite. Um, down here in Argentina, we say Fundacion Libertad, uh, which literally just means Liberty Foundation. Uh, and yep. that's the, the, the oldest classical liberal flash libertarian think tank in Argentina. That's where I work, yeah. Yeah, what he said, fantastic stuff. Really appreciate you having you on. You've got a piece out in Econ Lib, and I want to walk through it because it's unusual in American media. Look, American media is very American-centric for obvious reasons, but even more so than other parts of the world. We get real insular. We don't really pay attention to the rest of the world. Some of this Argentine election is breaking through the regular media coverage, though, and some of it's because of the personalities involved. Some of it's because, you know, there's been various news items over the last 10, 15 years. Americans have a bit of an affinity for the country of Argentina, as they should. They've been a good ally for a long time. Lay the foundation of this election before we get into the particulars, though, because some people might just see the pictures or the personalities or the name involved. Lay it out for us so we have a good foundation to understand what we're talking about here. Okay, so basically we have three main candidates uh, in Argentina right now. Uh, we just had in, in early August our um, primary election. Now we're heading to the general election, uh, which is taking place October 22nd. Um, if no candidate surpasses 45% of the vote or 40% of the vote with a 10 point difference, there's going to be a runoff on November uh, 12th. And the candidate who is leading in the polls is Javier Millet, uh, who is a self-described um, anarcho-capitalist, a libertarian, um, who is running for president basically on a platform that Argentina should dollarize uh, its economy because Argentines have chosen the dollar over the Argentine peso uh, in a country which is suffering from uh, chronic inflation. Uh, we're having 130% inflation and annual inflation rate right now. Um, and then we have Patricia Bullrich, uh, who is the former Minister of Security of uh, former President Mauricio Macri. Uh, so this is considered a center-right candidate, I would probably say more center uh, than right. Um, and then we have uh, current Minister of Economy, uh, Sergio Massa, who is the classical Peronist, so to say, uh, the classical populist that you always get uh, in Argentine elections. Um, and he is, well, at the time, there's some discussion on whether it is Bullrich or Massa, who is currently on second place. But all polls agree that Javier Millet is running uh, first place right now. Um, and some people even are even asking themselves whether he's not going to win in the first ballot, uh, which would be huge, um, like incredible news, as it was when he came uh, first in the primary in August. Because uh, just to, to finish up this introduction, 
this was not expected. Uh, polls were saying that um, Juntos por el Cambio, which is a coalition of Bullrich, was going to come first. Um, and then there was going to be uh, second place for Sergio Massa, the, the current government, uh, pro-government coalition. And then in third place, Javier Millet was going to come. This was turned upside down uh, on August 11th. And so ever since we've been, uh, you know, dealing with, with this incredible change uh, as political scientists and economists and trying to explain what's going to happen. Yeah, and to this, of course, has a lot of nuance and layers to it, especially for a foreign audience that doesn't understand everything about Kind of the theme, though, since this happened in August, though, and you touched in it on your piece and read this entire piece. We're going to link to it in the show notes, especially those links about the poverty line and things like that. A lot of detailed background information you'll want to educate yourself on. But the theme of this really seems to be that there's going to be a change. Are we going to do gradual change or radical change? Is that kind of a fair way to lay this out? I would say so. Yes. Um, Argentina is. Uh, at a point where economic liberalization is becoming inevitable, uh, just because uh, there are so many regulations, um, public spending is so high, the budget, the fiscal deficit is so high uh, that the only way out of this crisis is to liberalize, is to uh, reduce public spending, reduce taxes, cut regulations, and right now, uh, the main difference between Millet and Bullrich seems to be just how fast and how exactly you do it. Uh, Millet is saying we need to shut down the central bank altogether, you know, drop the peso, just adopt the dollar, and that will stabilize the economy immediately. And then we'll be able to cut taxes, cut public spending, cut regulations, and grow from there. Well, uh, Patricia Bullrich is saying we need a central bank, we just need an independent central bank which we haven't gotten in, in, in the past decades, I would say. Um, and we need to cut taxes, uh, regulations, public spending, but we need to do it in a way that makes this change sustainable in the long run, in the future. Because um, just so to give you a, a little bit more of context, um, Bullrich's coalition is likely going to have the biggest, the largest legislative bloc in Congress. Uh, Millet is very new. He is so new that currently in Congress, he only holds, well, he holds one seat uh, out of 257, and he only has one ally. Um, and we elect our legislators um, every two years. Um, we, we, we elect half of them every two years. And so what this means is that Millet is never going to get a majority in the House of Representatives or in the Senate. And so many people on the center and the center right are questioning his ability to actually implement change, for example, via decree, because not all the changes he wants to do can be made through decrees. Uh, whereas Millet is saying, well, you may have, you know, a majority or, or the first minority, but you don't really want to change. You don't want to go as far as I want to go. So that's basically the, the economic discussion that we're having right now. Yeah, and part of that discussion, for folks that aren't familiar with Argentina past Messi and Evita, maybe, what's the historical background that got here? I know some of us that really study these things, we know the background. Just give people two or three waypoints of the last 30, 40 years of history, because this didn't happen in a vacuum. Because you're talking about changing your whole currency. That's a big deal for any country. That, that's a massive deal. There is precedent for it. Ecuador did it uh, a while back, worked for a while, and then didn't because of other issues. But when you hear big sweeping changes like that, that happened for a reason. Give people a couple of points. I don't want to condense the entire history down because that's disrespectful, but we do need a background on how we got here, right? Yeah, so the big problem right now is inflation, basically. Um, and that is a problem that Argentina has had um, since the 1940s, the late 1940s and the early 1950s. 
when uh, Juan Domingo Perón, uh, a, a, a soldier, you know, came to power and started massively expanding government and spending way more than, than, than the money that the state had. And so that generated inflation um, through monetary emission. Um, now, that problem, we, we've had it for 80 years. The one time when we were able to control it was uh, the 1990s, uh, when we had President Menem um, peg the currency. And so that was the time where one peso was equal to one dollar. And he fixed basically the exchange rate for one decade from 1991 until it was no longer possible to keep it that way in 2001. Uh, and that was the one time in over the last 80 years that Argentina did not suffer from inflation. Now, after 2001, inflation came back. Um, even when the conditions uh, to, to hold it down were there, inflation still came back because the government kept expanding. Uh, the size of public spending as a percentage of GDP nearly doubled in the past two decades. And that has, that has had tremendous terrible consequences for the economy because that has meant that taxes have increased too. But not even the increase in taxes is sufficient is enough uh, for the government to cover this massive um, uh, spending, amount of spending. And so you have inflation again, also because nobody wants to lend money to Argentina because Argentina has a history of defaulting on its own debt. And so the problem is that it is only short-term money that you get uh, at rates that are increasing uh, on a daily basis, I would say, at this point, where we're having 13% uh, inflation only in August. Uh, we're waiting for the numbers of September, but in, in an economy like that, interest rates grow and continue to grow, but they, they're still not enough. Um, and so the risk that we have right now in Argentina is that the situation sort of spiralizes out of control, uh, spirals out of control, I'm sorry. Um, and that becomes the source of a hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is a word that we're hearing um, in, the, in this campaign uh, on a daily basis too. Millet saying that we may be heading to, hyper, to hyperinflation. Boric is saying it too. Massa is trying to avoid it as the current minister of economy. Um, but this is the talk that we're hearing in Argentina right now, that if things get bad, soon enough, we may have hyperinflation. Nobody wants that. Of course, no, the people don't want that, but it's, it's curious to see that, for example, for Millet, hyperinflation would likely be positive because then he would be able to solve it or at least appear as the solver of hyperinflation um, and you know, stay in, in, in history books uh, like the savior of Argentina. Um, and so you know, the, the time between now and December 10th, when the new president is going to take over, uh, that is going to be rough. You know, we're going to have to buckle up. Yeah, Marcos Falcone joining us. When it comes to Argentina, because we have these big personalities, and we'll talk about Malay in just a second, where are the people at? Because the American audience, you know, we, we don't do real good with physical policy. All those numbers go over our head, and we go chase another flashy object in the news we've had inflation to a smaller scale over the last year or so. So people are talking about it, but they don't really think about it. I don't think as far as fiscal policy goes, where are the people in Argentina? Cause we're talking about policy. You're a policy guy, you know, well and true economics is not a sexy popular thing to talk about. Where are the people at other than just, is it just raging at the government or do they have an understanding and an idea of no, we don't want to do this. Hyperinflation is one of those words to get people attention. Where are they at in this process, do you think? Well, you know, the, the great merit of Javier Millet has been to introduce topics like these, uh, like fiscal deficit, like, the, you know, a balanced budget, inflation in the public mind. Um, ever since he started appearing on TV some like five years ago, in his very, um, you know, uh, not, I don't want to say strange, but like a curious way, you know, by shouting at others and, and, and screaming on TV and just being histrionic, you know, um, he has conveyed, you know, the, the need for a balanced budget, uh, the need for, um, you know, tamering inflation in a way that nobody else was able to do it um, previously. 
But having said that, I do think that the Argentine people are just fed up, basically, with this situation, and not just with the government. Because um, if, the culp- if the public identify only this government as the culprit, then the coalition that represents the previous government, the Macri government, um, would be you know, running first, but it is not. Uh, so right now what you have is a, a feeling of an anti-politics feeling in the Argentine people. People are fed up. People go to the supermarket and they see that on a weekly basis, for example, prices change. Uh, but their salaries don't go up the same way that prices do. Um, people just want to end this. Whatever this is, they want it to stop. I'm not going to say that the Argentine people have turned libertarian all of a sudden, because I don't think that's the case. I just think we're lucky that the rage that the people are feeling um, is going to Millet, because it could have well gone to a far left candidate, for example, and that would have been uh, terribly uh, disastrous for the country. Um, but I, I don't think that people are turning libertarian. Uh, I think people are following Millet because they think that Millet has a solution to the economic problems that Argentina faces. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Marcos Falcone joining us. That's really the heart of all this current issue with Malay, though. And that's why it's broken through the coverage in the international press and in the American press. Look, the press gets lazy. They're going to, you know, in America, they're going to compare everybody to Trump. You know, in BBC, they're going to compare him to Boris Johnson. You get a loud, big personality type. He's got that funny haircut. He's loud. He yells. He's riding down the street in a car with a chainsaw. He's doing all that stuff. Is there substance to the sizzle? Is there stake to the sizzle? That's the question the outsiders have. You already brought it up. There's the question, like, if he gets into power, is he going to have a ruling coalition to actually do this stuff? That's the question people have from the media coverage. As you see it, though, what's a fair representation under the antics, which, as you said, it's people fed up. 
We've seen it before all through history. You can get the rage to get into the power. Can you channel that into something productive? That's kind of the big question and the unknown here, right? Well, I think uh, Millet's success depends, well, first on getting elected, uh, which is no certainty. I mean, it is a likely scenario, but not. we don't have 100% certainty of that. Um, and then I think his success will depend on how he, um, it, on whether he's able to um, build this coalition that you were talking about. And he has taken steps uh, to already try to secure support, for, for example, from um, trade unions. Um, he is uh, he, he's trying to get, for example, support from Peronist uh, union leaders, um, some of them notoriously corrupt, uh, like the people know they're corrupt. One of them uh, back in the 90s once said that, you know, we Argentines, we, we need to stop stealing for two years. And now he's meeting with Millet, and Millet's trying to secure support from him. But why is Millet trying to do that? Because he is trying, he's likely to attempt changes to labor legislation, for example, that if he has no allies, um, will not go through or will be traumatic for the population just because, you know, we'll, we'll have uh, demonstrations on the street daily, on a daily basis. Uh, and, and things will become unbearable. So Millet is trying to build this support. Um, I think if he wins the election, then the question will be how exactly does he secure um, a, a, a legislative bloc that is uh, large enough to survive? Because we also have impeachment, for example, here in Argentina. And if the opposition decides that they don't like Millet, they may have the numbers to just remove him from office. And so he's going to have to talk to the rest of the opposition, most likely, the, the, the center-right Juntos por el Cambio coalition, which in turn is composed of various parties, some of them which are more uh, classical liberal than others. Um, and, and, he, and the big question, the big question right now is, what is Millet going to do with Peronism? Um, because he is supposed to be an outsider. He is supposed to be an opponent of both Peronism and anti-Peronism. But then we have some indications that um, candidates who are running on Millet's behalf um, at the local level, at the state level, are Peronists. Uh, and some of them were part of this government. And some of them were part of the coalition that is currently supporting this government. And so nobody knows whether they are going to stay within Millet's coalition or whether they will go back to their origins. And so there are many questions as to whether Millet will be able to accomplish what he wants. Um, and I think that that's going to depend um, on his skill, um, which is going, I mean, if he's going to succeed, he's going to have to um, go back in his own steps because he has this style, you know, of being confrontational, of not, um, you know, of trying to not build alliances of any sort. But if he comes to power, he will have to build alliances because otherwise he's going to be a failure. And his voters will remind him very quickly of that because nobody wants to wait for anything. You know, with 130% of inflation and the risk of hyperinflation, everybody wants solutions and they want them now. Yeah. Marcos Falcone joining us. Part of this dynamic is not just, you know, how charismatic Malay is. His opponent is part of this story as well. Like you said, this election isn't wrapped up. Anything can happen. But Patricia Bullrich, she has a dynamic working against her. And you bring it up in your piece. Again, read this entire piece. We're going to be linking to it. Where the Thank gradual you. approach she is presenting and advocating for, this is recent memory stuff where they've heard this before in Argentina. They've seen it within the last decade or so, and it did not go well. Now, obviously, that's not all on her. The gradual approach is usually, you know, sounds good on paper, right? But that's a dynamic that's playing against, and it's probably feeding into the charismatic and the over-the-top stuff that Malay's doing a little bit, too. Talk about that dynamic a little bit, because that plays into the voters' mindset of, well, I've heard this before this guy may be a little off kilter and a little crazy, but let's try something here. Yeah. So between 2015 and 2019, um, we had Mauricio Macri as president 
and he was able to um, well basically kick Peronism out of power. Uh, it had been in power for 12 years, but then he did fail. And that's why Peronism went back to power in 2019. Um, and so it, it, it's curious because Millet actually likes Macri and he has said that uh, they usually talk. Uh, apparently Macri likes Millet too. And he thinks that Millet may be able to accomplish what he was not able to. Uh, but then Macri is, of course, uh, he is sort of obliged to support um, his candidate, his former minister, Patricia Bullrich. Um, but it looks like Patricia Bullrich is not even as economically um, conservative or classical liberal um, as Patricia Bullrich. Uh, in, in that way, the change within the Juntos por el Cambio coalition um, has been for worse. Um, it, they, they did not become aware that this gradual approach, you know, of just slowly lowering uh, taxes, slowly lowering uh, public spending um, does not work. And that's, uh, that's worrisome. That's worrisome for many voters. Um, but that, that also just, you know, feeds to the narrative that we're hearing more of the same, you know, that we've heard this before, as you say, and we know how that happened. If you um, do a poll on Mauricio Macri right now, for example, his net um, image is going to be negative, not positive. People do not have good uh, you know, memories about his presidency. Of course, uh, the first two years, everything went well. But then, you know, uh, after the markets realized that change was not being implemented as fast as, as he had promised, then things started to go really bad until he was kicked out of office. Um, so you know, uh, the, the dynamics in the rest of the opposition also seem to be benefiting uh, Millet. Not to say, of course, what's going on with, with the current economy, because the third candidate that, that, that we haven't talked about that much uh, so far, Sergio Massa, he's the current minister of the economy. Um, and he, of course, has a very hard time trying to justify everything that's happening under his own government, basically, because the president, you know, at this point, um, it's just symbolic. He, he, he does nothing. Nobody cares about him. He's not on the news. He's not running for re-election. He's widely unpopular. Um, and so everything has fallen to the Minister of Economy, who, of course, um, is having a hard time trying to explain why, uh, you know, inflation is at 130% or why has poverty reached uh, 40% as it was announced a few weeks ago um, or why we have, you know, um, a, a, an informal market for the dollar. Why? Why can't there be just one market? Why does the government need to um, fix a price? You know, um, fix the exchange rate um, and, and create all sorts of problems in the economy. Um, so the dynamics, both in the rest of the opposition and in the, within the government, are both benefiting Milay right now. Marcos Falcone joining us. Let's kind of round it off to where we started here. In Argentina, you spoke of it. This is not a new issue. This isn't like, you know, Venezuela where they were rich and then got poor again because of the government. This has been an 80-year thing that's gone on. This is multiple generations. You just said it in talking about the candidates there. Everybody's heard every there's nothing new that you're going to say in a campaign ad that folks haven't heard at this point, right? Is this more than just win an election and change things because nobody probably really believes that even if they believe one of these candidates can change things it's going to be more than one election thing is there a societal cultural almost a national identity thing that needs to change here to break this cycle do you think this is bigger than just the election no disrespect to the candidates but even they're saying you know malay's even said in some histories like this is not a one election fixed thing this is going to take a lot is that something that also has to be discussed or the people are discussing is like, look, we, we need to kind of re-examine who we are as a country and as a people here, because if you've done it for 80 years, it's just hard to break out of that kind of a rut, is it not? 
It is. Uh, and I think the, the big problem uh, for Argentina is that people have grown used to living off of others. And that is just terrible for the country. It has been terrible ever since Perón. And most of the presidents that followed him, um, the state has grown, you know, public spending has always increased. We have always had fiscal deficits. And the reason why that happens is because the, the government consistently wants to spend more money than it has. And the reason why that happens is because people demand money out of the state. And so this ends in, in, in terrible fiscal crisis like we experience once at least every 10 years. Um, and so what needs to change is the, the cultural sort of idea that people have a right of living off of the state. If you analyze today the number of subsidies that exist, the number of handouts, you know, um, in terms of how many people receive handouts and the, the amount of money that they get through handouts, uh, it's just through the roof. Right now in Argentina, you could be able to make a living just off of handouts, government handouts. You don't even have to work. When that happens, you know, you have this vicious circle of people just dropping out of the job market because they can get money out of the state, but then the money can't, re the, the state can't really afford that. And so we have inflation, you know, and debt prices and fiscal crisis in the end. So it is this vicious circle that we need to stop. People need to realize that, you know, if the state does things right, you know, if, if it just, uh, if it lowers taxes, if it lowers spending, if it sets reasonable rules for everyone to intervene in the market economy, then they can su they succeed. I'm sorry, they can succeed. Uh, then they can succeed by being, uh, of course, um, well, entrepreneurs uh, or, or just, you know, launching their ideas to the market. But it can't continue to happen that people think that they have a right to live on others. That is what is causing this crisis. Uh, and, and, and that is what needs to change. Yeah, Marcos Falcone joining us from down in Argentina. Um, give us a couple things, because we've got a couple weeks for this election. Give us a couple things to watch for in the headlines that might break through. Obviously, Javier Bonet, he's going to break through because he's charismatic. You get the Trump comparisons, which aren't a good comparison, but people, you know, it is what it is. He's going to get some press time up here, but what's a couple things folks should watch in the headlines as to what's actually happening down there, both during this election and, like you said, this is a short lead time. The new president comes in in December. This is going to go pretty quick. Just give folks something because they get busy. People forget, like, oh, that's that Argentina story. I need to watch that. Give us a couple nuggets to watch for in the couple coming months. Well, in, in the coming months, I would watch for um, economic indicators, maybe, uh, just to, to see whether – we are actually heading to hyperinflation or not. Um, of course, uh, I would look to, um, I will look for results uh, about 19 days from now, um, on, on October, um, a few weeks from now, on October uh, 22nd. Uh, and then I would look for, if Millet wins, uh, the, the names in his cabinet. Uh, because those may indicate the level of support that he gets from the establishment which so far is, it does not seem like it's, it's a lot. But if, if we get a new president, of course, that generates interest, and many people are going to want to join the government just because it's the government. Uh, and so there, we should watch out for Millet's judgment in picking cabinet members, for example. And we should also um, be aware of what he does and how he tries to uh, contact uh, other parties and coalitions in Congress, because that's going to be key for him to just basically stay in office uh, and, and, and block any uh, attempts at, um, at impeachment. But then also uh, it will be key to passing actual reform um, and not just through decrees, which are constitutionally limited to a few areas, uh, and not, not all of them. Yeah, Marcus Falcone. Okay, that was all tough, really serious, important stuff. Let me give you an easy one to take the edge off before we let you go. Uh, Leo Messi is in America. How's it playing down there, him being in America? Of course, he could do anything he wants to, and people would celebrate it because he's that beloved. But how's the American experiment for Argentine's favorite son going right now down there? How's it playing for those folks down there? I think it's going great for him. Um, 
he has been like mildly criticized by some left-wing lunatics um, who demanded that he come here, uh, that he had, you know, and said that he had sold his soul to the devil. But I think just people are just uh, realizing that he's having a great time. Um, and that's awesome. And I think Miami is a great choice for him uh, because it's it's full of Argentines, to be honest. Uh, but there aren't anywhere. So he can, you know, live his life, um, you know, enjoy the sunshine, play soccer, um, you know, enjoy his family um, and live the, the American dream, right? Which a lot of Argentines want to live true, uh, too. Uh, that's why we're, we're talking about dollarization after all. <laughs> so uh, I think people people like that Messi is enjoying his last years of uh, of soccer um, up in Miami. Yeah. yeah. And for folks that aren't familiar, Miami's one of those cities that just can handle a big celebrity like him. Like he can never be completely normal, but he can be more normal in a Miami or in L.A. because they're used yeah. to celebrity. You know, you've already seen the videos. He goes to the supermarket. He goes to Publix and things like that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I'll tell you that it's fun. Somebody that lived in Europe and has followed, you know, the European game for many years. It's a lot of fun for people to get a little taste of what that's like here in the state. Uh, Marcos Falcone really appreciate it. Again, this piece is an econ lib. We're going to link to the whole piece. There's two or three links in there. You really need to click the links to, especially that poverty rate one, because that gets to the heart of a lot of this. Read all that. Educate yourself on Argentina. We'll continue to talk about it, my friend. We will definitely have you back, but you got a lot of things going on. Let folks know where they can find you and follow you until we get you back on Hertel the next time. Yes. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you are very welcome to do so. Uh, you can f- find me under the uh, handle um, Iperfalcon, which is spelled as hyper, uh, only with a, with a Latin Y, um, and then Falcon at the end. And you'll find me, or it's just my name, you know, Marcos Falcone. You'll find me on Twitter. Uh, I also have a website, marcosfalcone.com.ar, uh, and you will find my, my latest updates on there. Yeah, really appreciate your time. Definitely will have you back. You know, we try to stay on top of this. We had talked about um, Argentina as some of the other elections. There's a lot of elections going on. There's some really some good ones that aren't, you know, like this one where there's some really then you got stuff like Ecuador that's really ugly right now. We appreciate your insights. We try to keep a global perspective. Thank you so much, sir. We'll have you back soon. Bye, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, sir. back to her tell let's have a little fun let's end on a good note let's go up to alaska natalie compton writing in the washington post about fat bear week if you're not familiar with fat bear week fat bear week has become kind of widely known uh for those of you from places that don't have bears like up yonder does this is the time of the year the bears start eating enormous amounts of food they get nice and fat so they can go hibernate for the winter uh, you get skinny bear week in the spring, but it's just not as popular. Anyway, let's go up to Alaska, this piece in the Washington Post. Link to the whole thing in the Substack notes. Make sure you're subscribed for free to theherdtel.substack.com. You won't be able to hear a bear walking behind you here. Despite weighing around 1,000 pounds, the park's 2,200 brown bears are inordinately quiet. But you will register their roars from deep in the woods and the snapping of salmon spines when an apex predator cracks open a cold one. Those sounds are particularly loud in a bear vortex, which is how wildlife guide and photographer John Cooper describes being surrounded by four bears. A bear nato means you're around six bears. A bear nami is eight. Double digits is like a barricade, said Cooper, 35, who's earned a nickname Bear Daddy. He has a large tattoo of his favorite bear, bear number 32, known as Chunk, on his right biceps. Cooper works at the Brooks Lodge and Brooks Camp, arguably the best place in the world to see a swarm of bears up close. Brooks has garnered international fame thanks to webcams that have been live streaming from the park since 2012, as well as Fat Bear Week, an online tournament celebrating the bears as they bulk up for hibernation. More than a million votes were cast in Fat Bear Week 22, and 10 million people turned into the cameras 
last June through October. Some bears now boast celebrity status like Cooper's beloved Chunk and number 480, Otis, one of the oldest regulars of Brooks River. Devotees support their favorites by buying merch and writing songs. Superfans follow the bears like the Kardashians, getting to know their personalities, fishing styles, and family lines, but only the most dedicated complete the trip to Alaska. It's impressive anyone makes it to Katmai. Getting to the motherland of fat bears requires the kind of time and money Taylor Swift fans put into attending the Eras Tour. First, there's the flight to Alaska, then a float plane or water taxi to the park because you can't drive there, and that'll set you back at least 400 a round trip. There's nothing easy about fight, figuring out how to get here, said Margot Egley, the owner of Bear Trail's cabin and campsite in King Salmon, the town many use as a jumping-off point to get to Brooks Camp. To stay the night at Brooks, you have to enter a lottery system with bleak odds reserved for one of the lodge's 16 rooms. Each sleeps four and costs $955 a night before tax. The alternate is day-tripping, a risky and expensive option given Alaska's mercurial climate, or staying at the 60-person campground, which is also competitive to reserve. Backcountry camping in bear country is free for obvious reasons. If you're here, I think usually it's because you really want to be here, said Melissa Friels, an Oregon resident whose September visit marked her 12th trip to Brooks Camp. Man, these folks have a lot of disposable income. In 2018, Friels started a private Facebook group, now has more than 7,000 members who swap travel trips, gear recommendations, and bear photos from their Brooks adventures. The group keeps a running list of who's visited and when. Members team up to share lodging and expenses. Some people call it summer camp because we tend to come the same time of year. It's really just a great community of people. There's a lot of pictures here, too. But the funny thing about this is this really is its own little community. The park takes the rules seriously to maintain its surreal harmony. So far in its history, there's been little conflict. There was some pawings at Brooks Camp in 2018 and a swatting in the backcountry in 2021, neither resulting in severe injuries. Well, that's comforting. Mike Fitz, a former Katmai Ranger who created bear, Fat Bear Week back in 2014, writes about the worst Brooks Camp incident in his book, The Bears of Brooks Falls, the Bible for the Fat Bear fans. In 1966, before an electric fence was installed around the Brooks Camp campground and rules about food storage weren't real strict, the camper was dragged from his sleeping bag by a bear. He was dropped after screaming. My impression was that the animal was startled, said Fitz, and required five months of hospital recovery in Anchorage. The most extreme example came the subject of Werner Herzog's 2000 film Grizzly Man, wherein a thousand-pound bear fatally mauled activist Timothy Treadwell and his girlfriend Amy Hoygar, 37. They were on the Catmate Coast, clear across the park from the Brooks Camp. Fat Bear Week. Now, we have bears up yonder. They tend to come down for the apple trees, but what we try to do when they're cubs and they wander down away from their mamas put a little bit of healthy fear of man in them. That's for our benefit, their benefit, and everybody else's benefits. We like bears. We don't want to have problems with them. You don't want to be friendly with them either. Make sure you keep nature where nature belongs, man where man belongs. Try to keep them as separate as possible when it comes to bears because they are big, and just because they are friend-shaped does not mean they are a friend, folks. Be careful out there if you want to go see the wildlife. You can see in West Virginia, too. Go see the wild and wonderful. We don't have the grizzlies, but we got plenty of black bears. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Always appreciate you joining us with the most precious thing you have your time. We don't just say that. We really mean it. That's why we put effort into having good guests, good topics. We don't waste your time with silliness to the best of our ability. Please make sure you are subscribed and following or whatever they call it on whatever platform you're getting Herd Tell on iTunes, Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio now. We're on all the podcasting platforms. Just type in Herd Tell Show and or my name, Andrew Donaldson. It will come right up. Best way to make sure you don't miss anything, the Substack, herdtel.substack.com. It's in all the links. It's on all the show notes. If you do that, the subscription for the Substack is free. I know a lot of people have pay-to-play Substacks and whatever. Ours is completely free. You get all the content free. Anytime I write something, anytime I re-up something from the archive, past episodes of Herdtel, uh, all my media appearances, we're getting those ported over as well. Never will cost you anything more than a couple clicks. So would you do us a favor and spend one more click sharing us on your social media? Let people know Herd Tell's worth checking out. Put it on your Facebook page, your Twitter X page, your Instagram, whatever. Let folks know we're here. We would sure appreciate it. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.